Well, it was the decade of happy days and all in the family, bell bottoms and leisure suits. Everything was groovy and out of sight, like John Travolta and Donnie and Marie. The Sony Walkman was first introduced, and in 1977, there was a little movie called Star Wars that made its debut. I was 12 years old, and I went to see the movie with my friend's family. 1977 was also a year that I asked Jesus to take control of my life. It was about that time that one of my spiritual mentors introduced me to a song called Rise Again, which was written and recorded by Dallas Holm. That song would stick with me through the years, and 45 years later, I am honored to have a sit-down with Dallas Holm to talk about his music and his ministry. Over the course of Dallas's career, he has released 34 albums, received five Dove Awards, and was inducted into the Gospel Music Association's Hall of Fame in 2012. Dallas and his wife, Linda, were married in 1969. They have two adult children and five grandchildren. It was truly an honor to have Dallas on the show, and I hope that you will be as blessed as I was while listening to this conversation of hope with a trailblazer in Christian music, Dallas Holm. All right. Well, I am with one of my uh, faith heroes, and I'm so honored to have you on Dallas Holm. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. My privilege. Well, so I've got to tell you, uh, we talked a little bit before we started recording. Um, I I accepted Christ as my Savior in 1977, um, a long time ago. And uh, shortly after that, I was introduced to a guy named Dallas Holm who was singing for Jesus. And uh, it was not contemporary Christian music wasn't a thing back then. And I think that's what really stood out to me. Um, somebody played Rise Again for me, and I remember just feeling like crying because I, I understood uh, through that song, what Jesus did for me at that moment, and so, uh, man, what what a journey you've had, and uh, you still are ministering. Um, tell us about tell us about what you're doing right now. Well, still, uh, you know, I, I've always said I don't care what ministry looks like; I just want to be effective in whatever I'm doing for the cause of the gospel and the kingdom of God. I toured for 50 years, from 1970 to 2020. And uh, coming to the end of 2019, I mean, we kind of felt it coming for maybe a couple of years before that, but just prayerfully, carefully sort of assessing what's our next step, where are we going, what does our ministry look like? Um, I, I just really felt like we were kind of winding down the tour schedule and the traveling, partially because of my wife's health. She's battled breast cancer for 35 years. And uh, five years ago, she had a craniotomy. The breast cancer traveled to her brain area. They did a surgery. They removed it, but it left her left leg, left side, a little bit compromised. She gets around, she drives, she does well, but traveling, dealing with crowds and checking in out of motels and all that, that was going to be very, very difficult. And that was just one of the components. It, it was just more a sense of, I feel like this season is kind of wrapping up. So we made the decision that at the end of 2019, we would stop touring. I would still take some dates and the Texas, Oklahoma area close to where I live, take a handful of dates. But as far as going out, doing weekends or doing a week tour, uh, that was just kind of off the table. Well, then COVID hit <laughs> 2020. Yeah. If we'd have had a schedule, we'd have never been able to do it anyway. So I, I kind of laughingly say it's That's almost right. like God knew. And so he certainly did. So we, we stopped traveling right now. We still actually we probably minister to more people right now then we did the last few years traveling all over the country because like a lot of people we've 
develop our social media much more. If you go to DallasHome.com, you can find our social media page. I write a newsletter every other month. I write a daily devotional. We have some podcasts, uh, very interactive. Of course, our product's always available there. So we really are honestly reaching more people with the gospel than when we were traveling, doing, you know, 50 dates a year uh, around the country. So it, it's changed a lot. Um, you know, the music aspect of it, when I started out, I became a Christian in 1965. Obviously, contemporary Christian music wasn't even a term yet. Uh, that term didn't arrive till around 1974. Prior to that, late 60s, early 70s, during the era of the Jesus movement, the Jesus revolution, a lot of us were getting saved, starting to just take our instruments, our, our style of music, and sing about Jesus. We didn't know what to call it. We just did it. We called it Jesus music. Some people called it Jesus rock. And then, like I said, about 74, the industry kind of caught up, started calling it contemporary Christian music, which I think uh, sold to the broader demographic a little bit better than Christian rock and roll or whatever. Um, right. I can remember some of the churches that I first went to in the late 60s, because I'd get invited. I mean, I sang in jails, rest homes, street corners, churches, any place, every place that I had an opportunity, I was there because it was such a privilege to get to share the gospel through through the music that I felt like God had given me to do. But... Mm -hmm. I can remember more than once walking in a church and opening up my guitar, and I had an electric guitar at that time, and the pastor or someone would say, oh, oh, Dallas, um, do you have an acoustic guitar? I mean, we've never had an electric guitar in our church. Drum set, you never heard of a drum set in the church. Uh, there were a couple of, uh, right. quote, <laughs> rock and roll evangelists that uh, one of them used to say that, that that drum beat was the devil's heartbeat. So. Uh, things were very, very different. Uh, when I go into churches now, which I still do, uh, you know, I do a lot of churches, all denominations, and almost without exception, on the platform somewhere will be the drum set, the electric guitar, the bass, and the synthesizer, and that's the worship team. And sometimes I want to go up to them and say, you're welcome, because uh, some of us fought some pretty brutal <laughs> battles back there just to get certain instruments in the doors of the church. So that's, that's evolved sure. and progressed a lot. Yeah, I'm sure. So clearly you think that's a good thing. Um, it, it is funny because I, I think back to that little Baptist church where I got saved in 1977, and uh, it was pretty contemporary, but there were no electric guitars. There were no drums. It was a piano and an organ. Right. Um, and that was pretty much it. I remember a guy that, that was really on the cutting edge. He he was really into photography, and he did these, these slideshows to contemporary it was contemporary music then. It wasn't Christian. Um, it was stuff that had kind of a Jesus flavor to it, but it really right. wasn't uh, Christian music. I want to actually talk to you about that. So looking back, I, you know, like I said, and I grew up in the church. I know you grew up in a Christian family as well. Um, what is what has changed over the years? I, I just read, uh, I, I don't know what the, the poll was, but it was a, one of the bigger polls that said that more people now than ever are claiming no religion. So clearly something has shifted. Yeah. What, what's your take on that? Uh, you've been in the church for years. You've been very directly involved in ministry. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? What's going on that's changed in our society, in our culture? Well, I saw somebody just the other night on, on TV, and I don't remember what program it was, but they, they presented the statistics of how many people claim to be Christians. You know, I, I don't remember the dates. We'll say 20 years ago. How many 10 years ago now it was down to 62 percent of americans claim to be christians 
And they, according to that study, oh, it was a Pew Research study, they said by the year 2045, Christians will be in a minority. That'll be the first time that there'll be a very, very minority uh, group in the United States, a minority religious group. And, you know, one of the, one of the uh, people on the program, they were discussing, you know, what are the reasons for that? And of course, we pointed back to, you know, when we kicked God out of the school, no more prayer, all these kinds of things right. that happen on the political landscape. But then the one gentleman uh, made a, a point that I totally concur with, and I've said it for years. I, I'll, I'll put it this way. I don't claim to be any smarter than anybody else. I most certainly am not, probably not as smart as most. But I have a perspective that very few people have in that I've traveled for 50 years. I've traveled. I figured it out one time, roughly. Someone asked me, how many miles have you traveled? I thought, I have no idea. So I went back and averaged how many tours I did a year, how many times I went overseas, how many miles I put on my cars, whatever. And I think I've traveled over 3 million miles. I've been to every state in this country. I've been to 21 countries around the world. I've been to every kind of denomination you can think of, literally. And, and I love that. I just If they invite me, I go. I'm going to preach the gospel and sing the gospel, uh, sure. no matter what the setting is, no matter what their doctrinal position is. So all that to say... It gives you a unique perspective on the body of Christ. I've seen it everywhere from Catholic to Quaker and everything in between. And if you were to ask me what's the greatest need in the church today, and this is what the gentleman said on the program the other night, and I, just, I remember I was sitting with my wife and I said, man, amen, that guy's got it. He said it really falls at the feet of the church themselves for lack of teaching and preaching sound theological, doctrinal, biblical, <laughs> you know, scriptural um, content in the church. You know, he, he went on to say the church has become so interested in bigger and better. A lot of the church, and it doesn't mean because a church is big, it's not as good, but I think there certainly is within the realm of, it's almost kind of this corporate structure climb to the top bigger is better that's not a christian idea that's not a biblical idea at all there's an old gospel song that says little is much when god is in it labor not for wealth or fame there's a crown and you can win it if you go in jesus name that's a great old lyric uh, oh, yeah a lot of the big churches have become corporate entities the pastor is no longer a shepherd he's a ceo a lot of the pastors you can't even get to the people can never even talk to them you got to go through some people I understand that when the numbers get so big, it's hard. You can't engage with everyone one-on-one. -on -one. But I hear these comments like, boy, they must be doing something right because look how big they are. Well, if that's yeah. the criteria that bigger is better, then we all must concede that the Muslims must be doing something right because look how they've mm -hmm. grown all over the world. So if you're going to walk yeah. down that road, it's going to become very, very problematic. And I think the church needs to return to sound biblical teaching and preaching. That man or whoever stands in that pulpit better be delivering the truth of the Word of God because anything other than that is just mere opinion and fluff. And we got a lot of that going on. You know, preaching used to be, I like to read the old writers. I like to read Spurgeon, Whitfield, Edwards, uh, the Wesleys, Moody. <laughs> You know, I just I find so much, and then some of the newer ones who are, who are now dead and gone, like Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, their idea was that you preach and teach the Word. Then you draw from life's experiences some applications or analogies that kind of support what you're trying to teach through the Word. But that's completely flipped upside down in a lot of our American uh, 
presentation of the gospel. We have all these life enrichment seminars, and I'm not saying that's bad, but a lot of what happens from the pulpit is an idea or a concept or an entertaining storyline, and then we grab from Scripture a verse here and there to support our idea, what we're saying. That's completely backwards uh, as to what uh, preaching ought to be. I'm, I'm a big fan of, if I can put it that way, uh, expositional or expository preaching, where you go through the Bible, a book at a time, line by line, verse by verse, and you teach people the Word of God, the context, the his history. Uh, now, I've sat through some guys' teachings that are of that school, and honestly, they can bore you to death, because everything is, and the Greek says, and the Hebrew says, and it's line by line. But when you have a man, as I do, the pastor of our church, loves the Word of God. He just loves God's Word. It's his passion to study it, to teach it. We go away every Sunday, my wife and I, we, we just go, oh, man, that was good. It challenges my life. Yeah. It, it's made yeah. me a better Christian. I, I understand more about the Lord. I understand more about His Word. I understand more about my relationship with Him because there's sound biblical teaching and preaching coming from the pulpit. I think that's the greatest need certainly in the American church and probably worldwide. So several years ago, uh, if not a decade or more ago, uh, we heard the, the term seeker-friendly churches. And I'm not going to you know put anybody on the spot here, but did we go too far with trying to reach those who would never walk into the church? I, I'm a big believer in meeting people where they are. That's what Jesus did. But it, it also, there's a fine line between getting people into the church so they can hear the gospel and having a message watered down so much and geared toward those people that we're not, we're not discipling the believers. Yeah. Is there, well, and actually is there the, a, a, the, the man that started, I will mention his name. I, I've met him. I was at that church uh, early on uh, that mm -hmm. started that whole seeker friendly movement. He eventually came a few years ago to really wash his hands of that and said, you know, after doing it this many years and observing what we're really coming up with, he said it's very weak on discipleship, and there's this continual mm -hmm. revolving door of people coming in, being entertained, uh, feeling very comfortable because everything is, you know, as they say, seeker-friendly. But they didn't tend to stay long. They came for a while, enjoyed, and then went somewhere else. So he himself really backed away from that, you know, some of us, not again, not that some of us are smarter than the rest, but it seemed obvious to me right from the very beginning that that was a flawed concept uh, because it doesn't have biblical support. It was the idea of men that, quite frankly, refuse to embrace what is scriptural that says the gospel is offensive. You can't get mm -hmm. away from it. The truth of the gospel is offensive. So when you when you try to hide the truth of Scripture and say, well, we've we got to figure out a different way to say this. We've got to take out the hard stuff. We've got to, if we're going to have them come into a building in here, let's take down anything that resembles what they might think is related to religion. Uh, and by the way, religion is not a bad word. We've kind of made it a bad word, but uh, I think in James it speaks of a pure and undefiled religion. So it's not a bad word. In fact, when, again, when you read the old writers, they all refer to religion with a clear understanding. We're talking about the practice of presenting the gospel and interacting as community within the body of Christ. It, it wasn't a bad word. But in recent times, we, you know, this, this idea that we can rearrange the furniture and take down whatever we think might be offensive, 
might make them uncomfortable. Okay, if you really, if you had reason to say, well, if we have this uh, cross uh, up on the wall or this picture of Jesus, they're, they're going to feel uncomfortable. Even if you allow for the fact that, okay, let's be sensitive to that. You know, it's not that we don't like the picture of Jesus and don't like the remembrance of the cross, but if that bothers someone and that's going to keep them away, okay, let's move those things away. But then you still have to present the truth of the gospel. Otherwise, you're not doing anything. That's right. And if you pre- present the truth of the gospel, it's always going to be way more offensive than any cross hanging on the wall or candles on a candelabra mm-hmm. or a picture of Jesus or whatever else. So the, the, real, yeah. the real tragedy of it all was it wasn't just about the environment. That was secondary. As we tried to be non-offensive and all-inclusive and make everybody feel comfortable, the gospel never sought to make anybody feel uncomfortable. It sought to tell the truth that we are sinners. We are lost. We are bound for hell. And if we don't understand and grasp the truth of the substitutionary atoning work of Calvary's cross, we got all of eternity to look forward to of great regret. That's right. And, uh, you know, and, and even, you know, in the last uh, 20 years especially, there's been a lot of teaching, and some authors and some presentations, some ideas that, uh, you know, we don't talk about hell anymore. Oh, there, there, there's no hell. That's a, what a flawed concept that a that a loving, merciful God would send people to hell. Well, That's He right. really doesn't. You, you choose it. If you can get by all of, you think of even Romans one, where it says that God's divine nature, His, his uh, attributes. I mean, the very essence of God, He has displayed through that which He has created, so that no one has an excuse. Now, that's yeah. not salvation, but God, you know, all of nature declares that he is. God has made this a loud, obvious statement to everyone. I am. Just look yeah. around. This cannot be random happenstance. So our part as Christians and as the church is to connect the dots, we might say. People have already been uh, impressed with the reality of a God. Now we need to bring him to Christ because apart from the truth of Christ, um, you can't be saved. You know, that, that's my, that, that's offensive. Well, how can you dare say there's only one way to heaven? I didn't say it. The Bible says it. God said it. That's his plan. Uh, well, the, the can't, I just can't accept the fact that there's a hell. Here's the argument, usually. In, in fact, I would say 99.5% of the times the argument is, if he's a loving, merciful God, how can it be fair? It wouldn't be fair that people who, for a very brief, short period we call life, sin, that they're cast forever into hell. That's not fair. Well, if you're going to approach anything on the basis of fairness, you're, you're, you're in big trouble right there. Because if you want to approach right. these lines of thought on the basis of fairness, then, then I, would, I would present this. What is infinitely more unfair than that sinners should go to hell is that sinners like us should have the opportunity to go to heaven that God should be merciful towards us, that he should give his only begotten son to die on the cross in our place, taking our sins upon him. In what universe is that fair? That is way more unfair. So don't ever approach these things or assess these things on the basis of fairness, because fairness, you know, I always say it this way, God is just, but he's not fair. Now that sounds wrong, that sounds bad. But when you consider that Jesus the only begotten Son of the only true and living God, was tempted in all ways just like you and me, yet without sin. He was perfect in every thought, every deed, every word, everything, absolutely flawless and perfect. Yet, 
he goes to a cross, is brutalized, is tortured, is blasphemed, is misrepresented, is nailed to a piece of wood, is, is shamed before all the world. Now, in what universe is that fair, according to our definition of understanding of fairness? So when you approach these things on the basis of fairness, you always, you're always off on the wrong trail and you're going to hit a bad dead end. <laughs> And that's my story that I'm sticking wow, to. That's it. so <laughs> that is so true. And man, that that's a sermon in and of itself right there. I really love that because I think you have hit the nail on the head and I think we we as the church have kind of turned away from just that basic truth. Um I think we get so far off on on our purpose. What uh I'm so grateful for churches like mine and sounds like yours as well that just are unwavering in the fact that this is yeah. God's word, and, and like you just said, we are sticking to it. Um, right. <laughs> the standards over the years have changed so much. The, the standard in in the seventies, I remember, you know, we'd put our nice clothes on, we would put smiles on our faces, we would go to church. Uh, there was, you know, some things wrong with with that mentality, but we there were basic standards, and that standard has changed so much over the past fifty years. Um, you know, now you talk about being offensive. We, you can barely go out into public without offending someone because of what you say or, or what you, uh, you know, what's on your bumper sticker or whatever. Um, right. And that's, I think, a really good indication. We were talking back in the 70s about how, how Jesus was coming soon. And I look back at that now and think, wow, we've come so far from even that standard yes. then. Um, and you're right. I, you know, the, the standard of God's word never changes. And so if we're basing our uh, our life on that, that then we're secure. Um, but if we're looking to the world to, to show us what's truth, then um, we're going to fail every time. So that's a well, really good word, we, Alice. We need to remember that if we are motivated by the love of Christ, which we as Christians claim to be, that God is love, that we are to show love, but let's take, for example, because the, you know, the wokeness of the culture has bled greatly into the church so let's just mm-hmm. take the uh the topic of homosexuality uh, true the church historically has not handled that very well we have treated the homosexuals like lepers we want nothing to do with them in fact as men we often uh, made fun or joke to make sure that everybody knew we weren't like that yet we called ourselves right. christians there was nothing christian about that behavior but right if we operate from a basis of love, I always kind of use this analogy, and all analogies are flawed, but if you were to ask me directions to a particular point, and I knew the way, but I also had knowledge of the fact that there was a bridge that was washed out, and if you took that way, you would go off that bridge and plunge to your death. But because I didn't want to bother you with a longer route, or I didn't want to get into a bunch of details or try to map out, I just said, you know, Take Highway 19 here, it's about 10 miles, just stay on that and you'll get right to your destination. And I don't tell them but that the bridge is washed down and they're going to die. Now, is that love? I mean, I'm guilty of not telling them the truth and it's costing them their lives. Uh, it's, a, it's a brutal yeah. thing. Okay, the truth of God's word, this is not my opinion. God speaks in his word very clearly, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not. It's very clear that homosexuality is regarded by a holy God as sin. So it is not, it's not in any way loving of us to avoid dealing with the truth of the matter that this is sinful behavior. You need to be 
reconciled to Christ. He loves you. He died that very sin. He took upon himself. He died for your sin, just like my sin, everything else, you know. Uh, that's love when we tell the truth, because the truth will set you free. Now, we either believe that or we don't. If we don't believe it, then go do something else. But if we believe the truth of the gospel and Jesus said, I am the truth, if that can really bring freedom and liberty, then by all means, we are obligated to share that. Will we be ridiculed for that? Absolutely, especially in our present culture, because now everything yeah. and everyone and every concept, every I was watching something on TV. I mean, it, it's gotten embarrassingly stupid. Uh, all the yeah. pronouns, these precious little girls, and yeah. my pronoun now is paint and painter. Mine is Z and Zer, and they're just making up stuff. And, right. uh, you know, non-binary. Nobody can even define what that is since the first time the term came out. What does that mean? No, and nobody that uses it, the term can adequately or accurately define what that even means. Yet the whole culture is just going off over this cliff with a bunch yeah. of jargon that they don't even know themselves what it's about. As Christians, we go, you know, you're, you're following... You're following the very enemy of your soul. If you only knew that, if you only knew this one, you're following hates you. He hates the God who made you and you will end in destruction. It's so sad. So our, our, our part as Christians is to tell the truth and try to lead to uh, saving grace. Those that will give us an ear. You know, you brought up the, the topic of homosexuality, and I think that's so prevalent right now. I mean, it, it's it's everywhere. And so I want to ask you a question that, that was a comment on one of the podcasts we did with Christopher Yuan. Uh, if you know his story, he was, uh, I'll, well, I'll let you, I'll let you listen to the, the podcast if you haven't heard it, for those of you listening. But um, the, the comment was on, on social media was, you can be a homosexual and a Christian. And we had a little bit of a dialogue going back and forth until it got to the point where it was, it was just really not helpful. Um, how would you how would you answer that? Because Jesus did cover all of our sins. So can I be homosexual and a Christian at the same time? I don't believe you can be a, a practicing homosexual. I, I, I can liken it to this. When I when I became a Christian in 1965, there were some things in my life that I knew were wrong. I knew were sinful that were immediately gone. They've never been an issue from that time to the, to now. There are other things mm -hmm. that I still have to discipline myself for. There, there are weaknesses of my flesh. There are certain things. I know that there, Dallas Home can't go certain places. I know that Dallas Home can't look right. at certain things. I know that Dallas Home can't say certain things. I know who I am. I know what my soft spots mm -hmm. are. So if I were to willingly continue to engage in, quote, sinful behavior, I can't call myself a Christian at that point. Um, you know, this gets into deeper doctrinal issues of the security of the believer, the perseverance of the saints, you know, right. but I, I, I lean yeah. more that way because I used to hear people say, well, if you call yourself a Christian and you go along, do it pretty good, but then you just kind of back out and go the other way. And the answer was, well, you were never really Christian to begin with. And I used to say, well, that's kind of a cop out. I mean, I think I know people at yeah. whatever they, they cried tears. They said the sinner's prayer. They had an experience, but the Bible tells us that, even the disciples, uh, and I'm not talking about just the 12, but there was a, a large group of disciples at one point that are following Jesus as he's doing his teaching, as he's doing the signs and the wonders. And to everyone else around, they would have looked just as the 12. They, these are Jesus' disciples. 
in that day when you became a disciple, it wasn't like, oh, I just like that guy's book or I like the way he talks. No, you left your home. You might even leave your job. I mean, you're going to follow this teacher and buy into everything he says. So there was this large group of disciples. And then when Jesus started saying some harder things, at one point he starts talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, the symbolic of what was going to happen on the cross, uh, and some other hard sayings. This, a lot of this large group of disciples left. And one of the 12 disciples asked, uh, you know, uh, kind of like, what's going on? Why are, why are, they, why are they leaving? And yeah. Jesus' response is, they're going out from us because they were never of us. He knew that they were never mm. engaged the same way the 12 were. They were followers. They looked like, now again, analogies. I mean, that's scripture, but it's kind of analogous. Uh, we have the same thing today. We have people, you know, the parable of the soils. Uh, the seeds yeah. of truth are sown on four different soils. It begins to take root. It begins to look like the real thing, but then other things happen, the thorns, the briars, the birds come take it away, the cares of life, deceitfulness of riches. And on only one of the soils does it truly take take place. I think a person, and I've dealt with, you know, the first ten and a half years of my life were spent ministering with David Wilkerson, started out in New yeah. York ministering to drug addicts, gangs. We often dealt with the homosexual community. And there were people who had a genuine, genuine conversion, were uh, remorseful of their sin, were following Jesus, but sometimes it was a long journey before they finally broke free of the hold sure. that that sin had on them. Now, would I say, well, as long as they still struggled with it or they had some setbacks, well, then they weren't a Christian. No, not according to Scripture. I mean, Number one, again, it's hard to get away from deeper doctrinal, doctrinal issues, but <laughs> I think it's important. You know, when we say things like, I found the Lord, that's a common, you know, I found the Lord. He was never lost. When we say, right. I decided to follow Jesus, my Bible tells me that he pursued me. In fact, that he chose me before the very foundation of the world. So his intentions far precede ours. And if I'll put it this way, if it's if it's God's intention to save someone, he's going to get them. He's going to work on yeah. them. He's going to influence yeah. them. He's going to convict them by his Holy Spirit. And they're going to come to faith in Christ. Um, again, you know, I know I, I can literally hear the wheels in some people's minds. Start, well, are you saying that? <laughs> you know, uh, don't even go sure. there. You don't even yeah. imagine what I'm saying. I'm, I'm just saying we have to have a bigger <laughs> understanding of the grace of God. Our largest comprehension of God's grace is minuscule compared to how marvelous mm -hmm. it really is. Now, that's misused a lot in the church now. Hey, you know, whatever, do yeah. whatever, go wherever, you know, just live in your sins. God's grace covers it all. No, that's not God's grace. That's right. God's grace is that's so right. marvelous, so patient, so merciful that he will deal with, quote, a homosexual for a long period of time to lead them out of bondage, just like he led the children of Israel out of the bondage of, of Egypt and other groups when, right. uh, you know, Israel was uh, time and time again because of their sin brought into bondage, but they were always his people. He always had a heart. He was always going to bring them out. So there's a lot in God's word to encourage the worst of sinners, but I can never... I can never come to the point because Bible, the Bible doesn't come to the point of saying, 
it's okay to participate in this sin and still think you're a Christian. That's right. There's a difference between failure, uh, unwanted, unplanned failure. There's a difference between that and a willful desire to continue in your sin. Uh, there's a big difference between those two things. So I, I think that needs to be understood before someone says, well, you can be whatever. Uh, I, can be a mur- I can be a homosexual and a Christian. Well, okay, I can be a murderer and a Christian. I can be a prostitute right. and a Christian. Those things don't feel right, even to the spiritually unenlightened. They don't sound right, whether they would admit that or not. Um, we, we understand the demands of Scripture more clearly than that. Yeah. And we're talking about sanctification, which is a lifelong process. And, uh, yeah, just that desire to serve him. And I think the older I get, the more I understand grace. And you're right, it's so minuscule that I'll never fully understand until I see him face-to-face what his grace really means to me. Um, But I think the more you do understand it, the more you really just want to say, God, I'm all yours. You know, take me and use me however you can. And so I love that. Well, I love, I love you know, what Oswald Chambers. I love what Oswald Chambers says about sanctification. He says we work out that which he has worked in, and what he's really saying is it's both. There, are, there are some denominations. There's a doctrinal distinctive in the camp of some who think uh, sanctification is a one-time, you know, second act of grace. They might call it. Uh, always becomes problematic because as soon as you respond and say, "Whew, now I'm sanctified." Well, then the first time you fail in sin, it's kind of like, well, I shot that. You know? <laughs> when I committed my life, the Lord surrendered to Jesus in 1965, 17th of October to be exact, that sanctification process began. There was a door open. He yeah. sanctified uh, has two or three uh, definitions that accompany the word. One of them is set apart unto holiness. So I was set apart at that moment, but was I holy was I, boy, all of a sudden, I'm just, it's all working like a Swiss watch. No, it was a process, and it yeah. continues to be a process, as I be as I am conformed to the image of Christ, as I uh, grow in grace, as I mature in my understanding of the Word. So it, it, it's ongoing, but it, it, there's also an entrance or a beginning point to it. And, of course, Scripture tells us that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. That's right. That's right. You know, as I as I was preparing for uh, our interview here, there was a part of me that that just wanted to say, Dallas, can you just play a bunch of songs for us? <laughs> and uh, I, I would I would love that. But uh, this has been so enriching. Um, I so appreciate your ministry, even as you continue uh, fifty years later. And uh, and I'm so grateful for what God's doing. I do want to I do want to just touch on uh, your music, though. Uh, to wrap this up, and that is uh, the song that just really struck a chord in me. And even today, when I hear it, it just takes me back to the '70s and to that point where I just want to kneel down and worship because of what it means to me. This was a this was a first person account. Uh, the song "Rise Again," um, which was, you know, really unique. I think right. even especially back then, but um, but still is fairly un- a unique perspective that you were saying, uh, go ahead and drive the nails in my hand and laugh at me from where you stand. And I, even as a 12-year-old, I got that. I understood what Jesus did for me. Where did that song come from? Well, I wrote that in 1976. I was uh, traveling with David Wilkerson at that time in ministry all around the country, in fact, many countries around the world. In 76, we came to the decision that let's put a band together because we were ministering to young people so much 
on the beaches during spring break, college campuses, and just seemed like a band would be more palatable to them. So in the process of putting together the group, I realized I'm going to have to write some new music because now I'll have a band, one three-part uh, vocal harmonies. And uh, normally songwriting was very, very easy. It was something that God just gave me to do. I could sit down with pen and paper and just write something. It didn't always come that quickly, mm -hmm. but I could usually come up with something. So I sat down, got my yellow tablet, my pencil, and, and I'm just sitting there, and all of a sudden I'm sitting there for a long time. I don't have a single idea. I'm so empty, so dry, just I can't come up with an idea. <laughs> so I began to pray, which I obviously should have done in the first place. But uh, in the course of my prayer, and kind of out of frustration, at one point I said, well, Lord, if you were singing, what would you say? And that thought really mm -hmm. stuck in my mind. I thought, I don't know if I've ever heard a song from a first-person point of view as hokey yeah. as this might sound, I, I imagined Jesus, as many of us see him in a, in a robe and long hair and beard, up on a stage with a guitar, with a band, singing. It's like, what, what would he sing? What would he say? What would that sound yeah, like? Wow. As I zeroed in on that, and I've never said I heard a voice from heaven, there were no thunder or claps or lightning bolts, but I began to write, uh, just like taking dictation, uh, 10 minutes, 15 mm. minutes tops. Words, music, no corrections. It was just there. Oh, wow. And it was clear in my heart, in my mind, this is something different. This is something special. I had not had an experience like that. And, of course, the rest is history, as they say. We we recorded that. Dallas Home and Praise was the name of the group we put together. In November of 76, we recorded that in the Lindale High School Auditorium, which seated about 500 people. Nobody had ever heard of us. Uh, we, did, we used semi-pro gear, a live... Uh, we did everything wrong. Uh, live albums were not popular. <laughs> we didn't go into the studio and do it. Uh, we put Rise Again about number four on side two, which was the absolute worst place you could put a song. He's called it the Graveyard of Tunes. And then, uh, and I, there's no good way to say this. Y'all don't know me, but I'm not saying this to toot my horn or anything. It just happened. It was the biggest surprise to me than anybody. Uh, it was the first uh, certified gold album by a male artist ever in That's Christian right. music. So it's like the Lord just right. took it and said, watch what I can do. And it still mm. continues to be recorded and sung all over the world. Everybody from Bob Dylan to Brad Paisley to uh, Bill Gaither to Pat Boone, <laughs> the list goes on and on of That's people. Right. Uh, it's, it's had great inroads into the black community. Black gospel choirs and singers have done a rise again for years. I've heard a heavy metal version of it. I mean, it's just like wow, the Lord just took it and, and opened doors that I would have never imagined. And it was such yeah. a blessing, not just because it gave us, uh, you know, great opportunity to minister in places and in ways we probably never would have had, but the fact that it's the very essence of the truth of the gospel. It really is a very simple song. Uh, three verses. Three choruses, you know, I mean, there's not, no big changes. It's not complicated. Anybody can sing it. But God just took it and used it because it's the truth of the gospel. And to this day, I, I still receive letters and emails from people that I heard that song and I gave my life to Jesus or that song was so influential in my life. So, you know, when you when you let the Lord do it, I, I have a quote on my desk, and I don't know who, who said it. I think it perhaps is attributed to George Whitfield, but I can't confirm that. But I, I came across it years ago, and I stuck it under. I got one of those glass tops on my desk, and I put photos of my grandchildren, things under the glass that stay there. In this quote I wrote down, it says this, There is no limit to what God can do with a man, providing he will not touch the glory. 
And boy, I look at that every time I'm in the office. God can accomplish so much if you'll just stay out of the way. Don't take it onto yourself. Don't bring bring the glory about yourself. It's not about you. It's all about Him. And that was that was so true in that song and how He's used it and continues to use it through the years. Wow, so good. Yeah, you know, you said that that it was a simple song, and I think that's really the statement for the gospel. The gospel message is so simple. And um, yep. yet, so incredibly profound. Uh, th- yep. There are no words. So, Dallas Holm, uh, we, we've had some technical problems. I appreciate you hanging in there with me, and uh, I would hey. love to welcome you back anytime. You, you've sure. created. Uh, you've got so much wisdom uh, from all your years of experience and just delving into God's Word. Really value our time together, and I, I would Thank love you. for you just to to dial me up sometime and say I want to come back on. We'd love to have you. All right. Privilege is mine. Thank. If you've never heard Dallas's music, I hope you will go to DallasHome.com. That's Dallas, H-O-L-M.com, and check it out. You can also find some of his music on Apple Music and Spotify and all those other online sources. Definitely check it out. You will be inspired. I hope you have some takeaways from our conversation, too. Uh, One of the takeaways that I had is the idea that God is not being fair to us. Why would he allow anybody to go to hell? Well, I love how Dallas reminded us that it's truly unfair for a holy and perfect God in Jesus Christ to come into our world and live among us, yet take on a brutal death to give us something we don't deserve, eternal life. That concept alone should change our perspective on life every single day. It's why we want to live in a way that honors God. It's why I want to share the only way that will get my friends and family to eternal life through Jesus Christ. The world around us is desperately looking for answers to the questions of life. We have the answer in Jesus. Let's make sure we carry the light of Christ with us wherever we go to be a beacon of hope. Well, as always, thank you so much for listening. Whether you watch the show on YouTube or listen to the podcast, please be sure to share it on social media and in your churches. We're trying to grow our YouTube presence, so be sure to subscribe to YouTube and to the podcast and hit that bell on on YouTube to get notifications each time we upload a new video. We'd also love for you to rate and review the podcast. All of this helps us grow and helps us to reach more people with the hope of Jesus. Well, we'll be back next week with another conversation of hope. So until then, remember, if your life is grounded in Jesus, even in the darkest times, there is hope.